Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The BIP Show. I'm Paul Colgan. BIP is for business, investment and policy. And as usual, we're going to dig into all of it with a particular focus on the Australian property market this week. I'm joined as always, and we're recording this episode on the 25th of June in Sydney by James Whelan, investment manager and macro strategist at the FS Group. Hi, how are you, James? Fantastic, Paul. Always good to be here. Cracking show ahead today. Indeed. And uh, also joining us from Amsterdam on the line, uh, Ken Vexler, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Acumen Management. How are you, Ken? I'm well. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon to all of you. Our guest this week is one of Australia's foremost property commentators, certainly among the people uh, I've had uh, some of the most interesting and most insightful conversations on uh, property with over the years. It's Pete Wargent of Alan Wargent joining us uh, from Noosa. G'day, Pete. Great to have you on the show. Thanks, Colgo. An Englishman in Noosa and an Aussie in Amsterdam. COVID technology. Well, that that that's right. Um, I was going to say, you know, an Englishman, an Irishman, and um, an Australian in Sydney, and another one in uh, Amsterdam uh, did a did an economics podcast. Um, it sounds like the start of something. Good, I reckon, um, hopefully. Um, so um, for those who aren't familiar with Pete, uh, many people know him um, from around the traps, but uh, he's a former director of Deloitte uh, and a qualified chartered accountant. Um, he has his property agency, Alan Wargent, uh, and his insights are keenly sought by companies and boards around the country. Um, so um, he is an Englishman and he's in Queensland, but we won't hold either of those things against him. I just want to set the scene. This is the Irishman. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, well, uh, I'm actually feeling a bit bearish today, uh, I must say. Um, I've been working in the city all week, uh, so that's been the first thing. Um, working in the city and just being around uh, the sort of north end of the CBD and uh, there are a lot of closed businesses. There's a lot of um, places that I've you know seen for years and know the owners and gone. Um, and there are not very many uh, people around the place either. And then last night the IMF revised its uh, global growth projections. Um, so they did the last one in April. Um, they revised them again last night. Uh, now they're talking about a much more severe uh, contraction to the global economy, something of the order of about 5%, 4.9%, they're saying. So that's an extra 1.9% from where they were in just April, just a matter of weeks ago. And uh, that's equivalent to something like $10 trillion, just not there um, in, in the global economy. Um so I don't know. Um, how's everybody else this week? I think I think a podcast might cheer me up. What do you reckon? Yeah, good news. I mean, it, it's morning here. I'm on my fourth coffee. I think it's been a rough night. It's incredibly hot over here, which is good. Um, read the IMF. I mean, honestly, fine. Yeah, they revised their numbers, and I understand. Uh, but invariably, IMF is always late to the party. They're always 
out by an order of well, a couple of percent either to the upside or downside. And this 5% or 4.9 or whatever they've come back with yesterday, um, it's, it's sort of been a Rumsfeldian known known in the market for probably a couple of weeks now. So, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be more focused on the fact that stuff's boarded up, as you noted, in, in the CBD and whatever else. I mean, I don't get out too much around uh, Amsterdam at the moment just because of reasons. Um, but, you know, th- there's no real sign of that here, so I haven't really experienced it. But, yeah, look, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't take the IMF stuff to heart because what's another couple of zeros on, on global growth that's been knocked off? You know, it, it, does it really matter? It's the real stuff that matters, I think. What's it like up in Noosa, Pete? Um, well, the thing is, we actually had um, we had a, a cluster really early on at the sales restaurant, and uh, yeah, we, we weren't taking it very seriously up here, or people weren't in general. But we haven't had a case on the coast for months, so we've been COVID-free. I would say, I mean, things are back to normal in many respects, but I've never seen so many for lease signs. Uh, those yellow ray white for lease signs so the retail uh, space has been absolutely clobbered i know we're out of season but yeah i mean th- things are happening again here but lots of empty shops so commercial property certainly something we're going to touch on uh, as we go on i think we'll 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 look at credit markets and, and commercial property first and then we'll get into um and we'll get into residential um so look i just want to set the scene here um with some a few big numbers. Um, so more than 400,000 mortgage holders have taken up mortgage holidays. They're worth about $150 billion combined. Um, more than 800,000 people have lost their jobs. Uh, another, it was just terrible this morning, Qantas, another 6,000. More, more job losses are expected. Um, you know, the consulting firms are, are laying off people, hundreds and hundreds of people, and that sort of tells you something else because they consult to all the industries. They, you know, do a lot of work with government, et cetera, like that. Um, so rates are at near zero, and you can get a mortgage at under 2.5%. And the other little eyebrow raiser for me this week was a report that we're suddenly seeing an increase in listings uh, of apartments uh, for sale, and that increases in the order of something like 20%. Now, um, a couple of episodes ago on the BIP show, we had Martin Wetton, who's uh, head of rate strategy at the Commonwealth Bank, and he was uh, explaining how the RBA's bond buying program, uh, you know, targeting the rate on uh, three-year Australian government bonds, was partly designed because a lot of mortgage fixing fixing is for three years, and basically all of that um, QE is designed to make it easy for people to get credit um and as martin point you know to make sure that the wheels of the banking system are turning effectively but as martin pointed out in the show you can make it easy to borrow but people still have to want to borrow yeah um and pete when we spoke earlier this week you said that there were signs that um both people maybe don't want to borrow and the banks are starting to get twitchy about lending maybe you can talk a bit about that and what you're seeing out there yeah, so so as Marty talked about the other day, with yield curve control, you can fix for three years now from 2.29%. So ostensibly, that really increases borrowing capacity and the desire to borrow. But pulling against that, lenders are tightening credit. So we've seen lower LVRs, lenders are disqualifying bonuses or accessible rental income. 
Uh, some lenders want actual declarations from borrowers to say they won't be affected by COVID. Well, you know, good luck with that. So um, there's more scrutiny of, of bars for self-employed. And do you mean do you mean they won't be affected by COVID in terms of their work, or they won't actually? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and we've seen, um, you know, the, uh, banks and lenders may swear blind this isn't happening, but there is discrimination by industry. So for people employed in, say, the arts or tourism, very hard to get loans at the moment. So, yeah, we've seen five rate cuts in 12 months, but that's been negated by tighter credit. And lenders are still assessing at 5.25% for resi anyway. So, mm. I mean, the CFR could juice the market tomorrow by allowing lenders to assess at 200 bips over the mortgage rate. I mean, that would increase borrowing capacity by 15%. But at the moment, uh, the tighter credit has just offset uh, the rate cuts, for, especially in resi. Yeah, so and we, we saw lending data um, for April, um, you know, a big pullback in the growth of lending. I mean, you'd expect it, right? Um, but it's something of the order of about 5% when you, um, uh, you look across investors and, and owner-occupiers. Owner um so, you know, um, that demand for credit is the other side of the equation. Sure, um, you, know, a, you know, mortgages in, in some ways should be cheap. But as you say, people are still getting assessed at 5 5.5%. Um, Just a quick question there for, for Pete Colgo. Um, those numbers make sense uh, to me in terms of, you know, the, well, I think they're stupid numbers, but they make sense in, in, in regard to a reticence from, on the part of lenders and whatever else assessing at five and a quarter percent and being, you know, uh, cautious about lending to certain uh, certain professions and industry groups. What I want to know is how much of that is self-imposed out of the lenders and the banks and how much, if any, is, uh, is APRA-imposed because previously the RBA lent heavily on APRA to, to look at the macro pru and sort of put the hammer down and APRA in, in all its glory did it quite... Uh, quite stunningly poorly that they acted in my in my opinion so how much of that five and a quarter and, and how much of those uh, you know conditions are imposed uh, by APRA or vicariously through APRA and as opposed to the banks I'd say it's a bit of both um I think uh you know APRA had a lot of criticism early on through the credit boom uh, but when when they finally did strike on interest only lending they came down really hard then and I yeah. think especially with the Banking Royal Commission as well. I think uh, regulation has been pretty tight. Now, I've seen some bits and pieces out there recently saying that uh, regulators are going to back off and allow banks to use their capital buffers and so on. But I, I think we've even seen you know valuers in the industry going in with really low-end valuations. So I think there's just a general reticence out there anyway and risk aversion. Mm-hmm. Well, well okay. uh, just, just yesterday, APRA... Um, did announce that they are encouraging the banks to start um, wearing down their capital buffers. So, you know, people have been wondering for years, like, well, why are, why are the banks building up, you know, so much capital and they're, 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 they've got bigger capital buffers than um, other comparable banks would have to have built up uh, in uh, advanced economies since the GFC. Um, but now that, um, th- that extra sort of you know, 100 basis points of, or 200 basis points of um, capital buffers are looking very, very bloody welcome, right? Yeah, look, um, 
Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, so that's, that's been the, the, the news that's been out there recently. So there's, there's an encouragement, you know, encourage the banks to get out there and lend. But the, the demand hasn't been there. So this is what's leading to some of these doomsday scenarios that you always see. But don't underestimate, though, the, the ScoMo put. I mean, this is a guy who is seven years at the Property Council. He's a pro-property PM. So you can think of this as the Aussie equivalent of J-PAL and the Alphabet Soup of bailout um, because we've got from 1 July they're rolling out uh, the first home loan deposit scheme. So that's another 10,000 places. Uh, ScoMo's already said if they are filled, they could be extended for low deposit borrowers further. It's got the home builder package, state level first home buyer incentives. Now they're mooting early access to super. You know, stamp duty reform is on the table. So Essentially, the for first home buyers in particular, the beatings will continue until morale improves. I guess. Yeah, one of the things that everybody's sort of thinking about too, Pete, is um, the policy mix as we approach this sort of uh, September October period. Where um, first of all, it's, it looks like they're going to start winding back the job keeper stimulus, <coughs> which was designed to help. Um, companies keep staff on their books um, and then also you're going to get these mortgage holidays I mean you know hundreds of thousands of mortgages um, you know six months uh, you know of re or, or you know six months holiday from repayments and you won't be seen as going into arrears and your mortgage by the banks and fair play to the banks to be honest um, for stepping up on that on that front and it looks like they're going to have to do eat a bit more of that um, but it is going to start to get interesting, isn't it, in the next two months or so um, as we approach um, this, um, this, this threshold when the fiscal starts coming back and, and the mortgage holidays run, run, run down. Yeah, totally. And this, uh, this is where I'll have to defer to Professor Whelan and his two unifying laws of economics. The, the theory of thing, if you're not familiar, and if I've understood it correctly, is that everybody's now starting to talk about a September cliff. And because we know it's a thing, Therefore, it doesn't remain a thing. Um, so if you take that, uh, the APRA example with the interest-only lending, uh, you had guys like uh, Richard Holden at Union New South Wales. He wrote about 400 articles about this staggering time bomb and economic debacle. But in the real world, you know, we just said to our clients, look, you might need to refinance the lower rates on P&I, uh, maybe use your redraw facility, maybe sell a property. And the stock of interest-only loans went from... 39% to 18 and we all got on with life and there was no time bomb. So I guess in this instance, we've got 700,000 loans in total. Um, and so that's 237 billion. I think we've now got 176 billion of that, which is resi. But there's very little incentive in Australia to repossess or foreclose. So I expect we'll see extension of loan terms, interest only, making a comeback, use of redraw. And don't forget the um, the balls up with JobKeeper, you know, the accounting uh, debacle. That's, that's essentially found $60 billion down the back of the sofa. So unless the <laughs> treasurer has completely uh, got rocks in his head, uh, Ken, hold your tongue, uh, we should see them smooth things out. <laughs> they should smooth things out until 2021, at least for some of the most hard-hit industries. Better summary of the uh, the theory of thing than that, Pete. Uh, so and, take us through the thingness of things. Whether... Okay, so, so the theory... Yeah, the please. Theory... Okay, yeah, Ken's about to nail me to... Yeah, to please. No, I, I, I'm, gen I'm genuinely curious. Like, I, I, I think this makes sense, but 
it's too early in the morning, so I'm listening. Please go. The theory of the thing is is one of those is one of those as as an investor and as a follower of you know you've got to stay in touch with the financial media and all of the, the bits and pieces that go on, but you can't get you, you can't get driven by it because then you're reacting all the time. But you, we, you know those things that come up where it's like you've got the remember the fiscal cliff. This is going to be this is going to come. When this happens, it'll be it'll be disaster. It'll be disaster. It'll be disaster. The more it gets talked talked about, the softer the actual impact of it because resolutions are found, things are solved, or it's just kicked down – most of the time the can has just been kicked down the road. So when we talk about this September cliff of everyone then suddenly you, – you've got to pay your bars, you've got to pay your rent, you've got to pay – all of these things start to kick in. The more that that gets talked about, the less of an impact it's actually going to have. If it was – you know, the real impacts on market are the ones that you don't see coming, like – for example, a pandemic, but the and, and and that's the theory of thing that we see that that people who react on a big event that everyone's talking about, they're reacting too soon, and it's a completely a non-event more times than not. And Ken, you'd know this from from the investment side. Actually, on the coalface, if you reacted to every time that someone said something was going to happen next month, and it was on every single headline, yeah, you'd yeah, 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 all agreed. Very short, very short career in the industry. <laughs> or a long one, depending on what, what your job is. But yeah, yeah, no point taken. We're very well taken. Okay, we're going to take a short break and uh, we'll come back and talk about commercial property and uh, and also the residential market. Uh, commercial property, I'm sure, on everybody's mind as they think about going back to work at the moment. Uh, we'll be back shortly. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the BIP Show. Uh, Paul Colgan here with James Whelan in Sydney. Ken Vexel's on the line from Amsterdam. And our guest is Pete Wargent of Alan Wargent, uh, who's joining us on the line from Noosa. So, look, Pete, look, everybody has changed the way they work. Um, there is a very simple reality at work here. Uh, rent is a huge part of every every company's cost base. Um, well, it's not unusual to, for it to be 20 or uh, 30% of your uh, of your cost line, uh, maybe forty or fifty, depending on how vain you are, um, and it uh, you know it's cl- clear now after the way everybody's done everything in the last um, uh, few months that those cost lines probably don't need to be as big as they are uh, on um, on company budgets, right? So, I think one thing that's interesting is that our central business districts have been built around having these huge office towers that fit literally thousands and thousands of people. And then there are in amongst that, there's all the small businesses that rely on the custom of the working public that, you know, so um, 
it's very complicated. It's very worrying, to be honest. Uh, you know, as I said, walking around Sydney this week, um, a bit troubling. Um, how do you think about it? Uh, how's it all shaking out and what are you going to be watching? Well, I think, um, I mean, the big mega trend since humans domesticated week 12,000 years ago has been towards you know, larger and larger conurbations. That, that doesn't mean that some civilizations don't die, though. I mean, historically, there was a really solid correlation between job ads and the CBD net absorption rate of office space. The correlation is really good. It's like 0.7 or something. But job ads in New South Wales have just been crushed. They went from 70,000 to about 20, and now they're back to about 30. So the rebound's begun. But I think if you just look at the sheer scale of layoffs, we'll probably see 10 to 20% vacancies in the CBD, probably similar for Victoria and Melbourne. Um, but I guess the other side of that is that flexible work is hardly a new trend. Uh, so I would just look at what the big players in the market today are doing because there are the, the big players in the market for space right now would be Australia Post, Westpac, CBA. I mean, if they're still looking at central uh, locations, then I'd say the, the normal trend remains intact. Uh, but also um, look at what the tech bros are doing. You've got Am- Apple, Amazon, Tesla, Google. They're all within about two clicks of Central Station in Sydney or Piermont. So, yes, there are some tree changes and sea changes. Uh, so going to those peri-urban locations, so Geelong, Bendigo, Ballarat, um, Newcastle and the Gong and up here, Gold Coast and Sunny Coast. But generally speaking in Australia, migrants go to Sydney and Melbourne because that's what we know and that's where the opportunities are, in- including two of us on this podcast. So I would say over 20 years, don't bet against the cities. That's my view. So, and do do um, do you think this is a problem though for um, the commercial property companies themselves? Right? They've got you know often, you know we've done particularly in Brisbane too a great job of sprucing up the CBD. You know, there's a lot of very big construction projects have gone over there over the last decade, uh, and in Sydney too. You know, there's a lot been a lot of um, office redevelopment. Um, know so much talk about how a good office environment was so important to you know companies and all of that kind of thing um but now they're realizing that the space just the physical space isn't um necessary uh and all a lot of this development would have been undertaken at a an assumption of a certain level of occupancy and a certain rate a certain market rate um for floor space do you think that might be a bit of a problem uh, yeah, so th- there's already been a surge in incentives and I wouldn't be at all surprised if you saw rents dropping 10 to 20% in some of these big CBD locations. So yeah, I mean, it's it's clearly a very adverse situation for commercial um, and yeah, I mean, it's difficult to project out how things are going to change, but uh, certainly up in this part of the world, things are getting back to normal, but um, you guys would have a better handle than me on what's happening in Sydney because I've effectively been quarantined for four months. Oh, well, I, I can chip in on that one. So, and this goes back to a couple of weeks ago, again, Martin Wetton and uh, CBA. You mentioned CBA just then, Pete, as being one of the big tenants in uh, in this city and probably in a lot of cities as well. But the the so take CBA, take these places. So talking to Martin and talking to my old crew at, at CBA, that, that they're running about a 20, 30% uh, attendance um, in their office, you know, work there and be at home, take, uh, I say team, what's team, uh, Atlassian. They've, all of their staff are allowed to be from home. Uh, so that's basically, that's, that's dead, that dead space. The city, the city itself, however, on the other side of the coin, 
you've got people who actually still need somewhere to live. So this is sort of where, where, where the theory is cooking up that I've got here and the, the, the anecdotes uh, do appreciate this. You've also got the big, uh, the big tenants in the city. They've got all this space. So, so and, and I bring, it, it brings me back. Let's just say you're a general manager of, uh, of a fairly big company. You've got a couple of hundred people and, and, and you take up a few floors with these damn elevators and I still refuse to get in an elevator because that's where, that's where these things spread. So, and you look at and you're thinking, well, we only have 20% people here. We don't need all this space and our revenues are probably down. So, uh, look, we don't need this, so, so we're not going to renew it. But then you've got the big tenants in the city and they still need to fill it, they still need to make money. And so the big play that's happening now is going to be, I believe, in the refit from the commercial into the, the residential. It's actually going to change the, the face and the shape of at least this city as more of those commercial places become residential. So then the kick that, that will happen from that is going to be a, a whole bunch of people. Sydney becomes a, a living city. So it, the, the, the pubs might be open a little bit later on a Tuesday, for example, a little bit later Or, or on have week, people in them. And actually have people in them, right? So, so, and and that's, it's going to be more of that living city and then you need people to, to, to help that and help those people. There. And, and it's that growth that happens of, of, well, if we're open at this time, then someone's going to need maybe a, a kebab at 10 o'clock, so we're going to stay open. And it's just that, that flow that happens. The face of Sydney is actually going to change because the refit from commercial to residential has to happen. It's, it's just forced. A, people need somewhere to live. There's going to be somewhere that's cheap to live. It's closer to where your work may or may not be. You can work from home anyway. And for the, for the, for the, for the one or two days a week when you, when you need to be in the office, just because that's how people need to run things, um, you're, you're close to it as well. Sydney will change. So we're going to look at this in, in a few years' time. It's going to be pretty quick too, I mm. think, uh, that, that, uh, that Sydney will change. It'll become more of that living, a later night sort of city and with, with more actual people living here. Yeah, because it's been one of the features of Sydney um, for a long time really. Um, and it's quite striking for, for people who haven't been to Sydney, any listeners who haven't been to Sydney or um, – uh, you know, are from are from particularly in Europe uh, is very much the case, but even in in, um, in Brisbane to some extent in Melbourne, much more active um, at night. Uh, Sydney sort of tends to get to the end of the day, and particularly um, the commercial quarters of it, like everybody just goes home <laughs> and there's nothing to do. Yeah, but, but there's there's been a, I mean my my sort of experience with it, you know, certainly living there or whatever else many years ago, but. Uh, it, it's always been sort of chicken and the egg. There was, there was a reticence to build out the the retail type infrastructure, be it the the, the Seven Elevens, the takeaway shops, the corner shops, or whatever, in the actual city because there weren't the residents, the the retail, the residential residents to support it, and vice versa. There wasn't that residential sort of push because there wasn't that infrastructure, you know, by way of shops and whatever stays like, you know, there to support. That so at the fringes, <clears throat> so down towards Surrey Hills and and um, Central Station, whatever you slowly got stuff being built out, but that's about as close as it got because from there to walk back in towards the city and suddenly towards the quay and whatever else, it was just office building. So I'm just wondering whether there will that then become this. I mean, I know it's changed a bit recently, but I just wonder whether there will then become this shift in in mentality to to start building out that infras or that's you know infrastructure support to, to attract a, a more residential crowd. But, I mean, that's very Sydney-specific, so... Yeah, it, it, would be, it would be very welcome, too. I think, you know, most people mm. in Sydney would like to see more. Yeah, I think, I think it will by force um, and just because it's there and there's, and there's money to be made and you can't just have that space be dead. So, 
fill it yeah. with the people who actually want to live there, and then and then the chicken and the egg. It just it, it just becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. Pete, do you think there's any um, systemic risk in this because just the sheer size of the companies that are involved here, uh, and the scale of the projects, and the amount of uh, uh, lending that needs to happen when you build a giant office block, and now all of a sudden you find that uh, all your clients are saying, um, "Hey, I think you know we need to cancel our lease or get out of it." Um, so, you know, how do you think about that, Pete? Well, yeah, my experience of rental markets in general, you know, you, you, we've had so many stories over the years. You know, overbuilding, oversupply. You know, generally what happens is though when you get that situation, it puts the the tenant uh, takes control. They get to negotiate a, a better terms, lower rents, and then the vacancies fill up and things kind of smooth out that way. So, um, you know, I'm not particularly uh, you know positive for for the sector overall, but usually what happens is incentives come along, rents fall 10, 20%, then people start taking it up again. I mean, obviously there's a heck of a lot of unknowns here in terms of um, second waves and all of that stuff. But I would say over the medium term, you know, I guess things will correct themselves. And as James said, you know, some projects get switched to resi and things just smooth out. So the one other side of this coin uh, is, um, you know, potential tree changes, right? So urban density reducing, uh, you know, because the necessity of being in and around the place of work declines. Uh, and the idea that maybe some places which are kind of like satellite towns and um, not very convenient if you want to, if you work, if you currently work in a company in, that's based in a city like Sydney or Melbourne, but all of a sudden now it becomes easier to live in the kind of hinterland um, because of the way that work is, the, the way the nature of work is changing. Um, what do you think of this? I mean, because there have been a few people sort of wondering, is this going to be good for regional and sort of outer suburban parts of, uh, of our cities? Um, and this starts us into residential, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, these places like Noosa, Noosa, uh, you know, um, which, you know, we know properties uh, uh, hard to come by up there, uh, Pete, uh, beautiful part of the world. But places like that, might they become uh, more desirable um, for people who are thinking, who realizing the pennies dropped, they don't need to be in the city anymore. Yeah, I think, I mean, that trend has been around for a long time, the tree change and sea change uh, thing, if you like. Um, and certainly, I mean, every time I do a podcast with you, Colgo, I seem to have moved further north. So I guess I'm a, a case in point. Um, but the thing is, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll be in Darwin. Yeah, so, uh, but I think um, at the moment, you see, we've got a very unusual situation because immigration is effectively switched off. But um, it, Australia, since the start of the resources boom, has really been driven by very high levels of absolute immigration. And, you know, when you look at it, migrants basically go to Sydney and Melbourne CBD uh, or within striking distance thereof, and about 90% uh, stay in the capital city. So uh, I guess, you know, there, there will always be the incumbents in Sydney that go to southeast Queensland. Um, and SEQ is very popular for retirees, but. Assuming we go back to similar levels of immigration at some point, I would say that Sydney and Melbourne will reassert themselves. In saying that, a lot of people have been inquiring about these uh, sort of tree change locations like the B cities in Victoria and stuff. Uh, but over the medium term, I, 
I guess um, I'm, I'm happy to have somebody take the other side of it, but uh, Sydney and Melbourne tend to dominate. Mm. Um, so talking about that immigration thing, now one of the things you hear all the um, the property notters uh, talking about uh, all the time is, you know, the Ponzi scheme and, you know, the immigration Ponzi and it's just a disgrace and blah. Um, you know who you are. Hello, if you're listening. Um, so, um, some of my best friends. Jeez, yeah. <laughs> yeah, geez, cold guy, go easy. <laughs> cool. We're going to call them nutters. Okay. Yeah. Finish, right. finish. If, if, if that's how you want to increase our audience share, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. G'day, everyone. Bring it home, Paul. Hello, Come on. Everybody. Bring yeah, it home. Yeah, yeah. Bring it home. Dig up. Um, so, yeah. Um, can you hand me that shovel there? Um, so, um, <laughs> so look. Um, but look. Uh, rental markets are kind of in a bit of disarray. We've got all these problems with, you know, the huge amounts of apartments we've built, Pete, in, in the last few years. Um, now, you know, it's basically international students gone uh, or stopped and the flow of uh, migrants coming from overseas gone as well. What's happening? Yes, yeah, so, uh, well, the, one of the biggest parts of the Ponzi scheme you've already touched on there, the international students uh, visas. So there's something like about 480,000 are still in Australia, but there's about 125,000 effectively marooned overseas. I think the important part for rental markets is the higher education uh, uh, students, and about 82,000 of those are still stuck overseas, largely in Asia and China. Plus, you've got the Airbnb thing. See, a lot of these Airbnbs, it's very difficult to have an Airbnb rental. We're in the middle of social distancing rules. So, I mean, rents are off 5 to 10% in Sydney, a bit less in Melbourne, maybe 5%. Um, but, yeah, there's there's a real proliferation of CBD apartments, student rentals. Uh, but in saying that, just as James already touched on, uh, household formation is actually happening again. So Louis Christopher of SQM, QDOS, he has a really good uh, data scraping series that he runs, and he shows that total rental listings actually peaked on 1 May and they've been declining ever since. So they peaked at about 105,000. Now we're down to about 98. So people are actually, um, they've got the confidence to start renting again. Uh, I guess some of those Airbnb rentals, people have just uh, yanked off the market. Um, So things, things are actually moving in the right direction again for the rental market, but it's those CBD areas in particular a lot of vacant apartments, so uh, rents will obviously fall there. But I'd say retail is the big one, um, with the caveat that I've only really gone between uh, Noosa and the Tweed over the past four months. But there's just so many for lease signs in the shops, but um, most apartments seem to be renting, just often at 5 or 10% less. Ken, uh, as an Australian living overseas, and I know you, you, know, you get home regularly, or, or you did until... Um, the, All hell broke loose. The viral curtain came down. Yeah. Um, so, but how do you think about this? You know, um, given that there's been, you know, you always look at um, the Australian market oh. for, with an outsider's perspective. Um, you know, how do you think about what the risk looks like here? Look, I, I don't. I, I haven't thought about it in terms of the the risk, I suppose, to, to that particular market segment. But my my view on Australian real estate for for many years, certainly even. Even while I was living in Oz, and, and most definitely since since uh, since leaving, um, is that you know it's it's a means by which to pass down generational wealth, right? So if you, I mean, if you look at Australia, there, there are only there's only one Gina, there's only one Len, there's only 
one Moran family, etc., etc. Although I don't know what's left of that. Um, so you know the, the the nature of generational wealth and wealth creation and, and wealth transition in Australia, for better or for worse, and it is for worse in my opinion, comes down a lot to real estate, um, be it you know existing or, or future generations. So. And with, with inherent demand for various reasons, be it overseas students in the rental market, be it you know a, a nice little mattress for Chinese offshore money or similar, um, there seems to be, uh, and has been for many years and probably will continue, an underlying uh, flaw in the, um, in the real estate market. Um, and I don't think that's going to be significantly disrupted. Again, if you look over the next, say, five, ten years, I don't think that this current episode the pandemic episode is going to significantly disrupt that over over that horizon yeah i mean there'll be readjustments and and we've seen some and they'll continue to be as, as peter's pointed out both in rental and, and sale prices but given what real estate actually represents as as an asset class in australia and what it's done over the last 30 more years um, and how ingrained it is in in the mindset of the population and what it represents i don't think on the whole we've got too much to fear and, and there's too much vested interest both political and social in keeping that particular market segment not not buoyant and frothy but at the very least at a consistent sort of level as i said you know if you look at it as a curve over whatever time horizon so i mean that's how i look at at, at real estate in oz um Pardon my French, I don't. Uh, I think you were about to swear. Did I just cut you off ahead of a? a yeah, 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 yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna disclaim it by saying pardon my French, but anyway, go on. Yeah, but <laughs> I think it's really interesting what you, uh, the way you frame that because uh, Pete said at the start of the show, you know, not to underestimate the scomo put. So you know, when you think about the policy options here in terms of saving the economy, like one of the things where you can do, where you can generate a lot of activity, and we've already seen this through the uh, renovation grants, is um, getting some activity going in the construction sector, right? So trying to get the housing overall property market feeling okay that people you know people might do up their house, and then think about. Um, capitalizing on it if the market doesn't look too weak by selling it because they've made improvements or whatever that have, um, that, that where they can get a, a better price um, and um, maybe make a decision that uh, pull forward a decision that they've been thinking about um, for for some time um, James just on that we'd, we've done this the theory of the thing mm. right so a thing being a thing mm-hmm. um, but you also, and this wasn't intentional, but you also have a theory of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, I've got a bachelor of uh, bachelor of social sciences with a majoring in, in thing and stuff. Uh, the theory of stuff. Now, now we've we've mentioned uh, migration a lot, so so there will be a question to the floor in a second with regards to migration. But I'll <coughs> I'll I'll, pre, uh, I'll preface that with the theory of stuff. So the theory of stuff is 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 an obvious economic theory, but I put things into terms that people can can bite into the theory of stuff which is based on the fact that economies are built and driven and the backbone of the economy is 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 on people hooking up buying a house having kids filling it with stuff that's the theory of stuff without that then you sort of meander and, and it's deflationary and, and we talk no about stuff we mean you know couches tvs kettles, irons kettles yep, yep all the all those things right and and there's only so much hand-me-down things that you can have and okay so you know i've got 
got a job and uh, we've got a kid coming so I'm going to buy, you know, we need to buy a, a, a crib and then we need to buy another bed and then we need to, okay, maybe we need another level on the house. And, and it's that sort of economic thing. And always, always, always I think about Japan as being that non-stuff thing where the only stuff that's actually being sold and turned over is things for, for older people because they've got a declining population, um, a very low birth rate and as much money as, as various central banks have, have thrown at it has still not been able to get it done. And, and the, the argument that's happening is, is the world becoming, you know, the Japanification, this argument that's going on is, are we all heading in that direction? And this, this comes into it. So it all comes together. And jokingly, I say that, in fact, it changes the entire face of some suburbs and some parts of the, the, the world that when kids, it could be a really troubled part of Sydney, but then when kids get together, and I've got to say kids, you know, young young people, they get together and they have a kid on the way, all of a sudden... The, 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 the juvenile delinquent that was running around at night, suddenly he's, he needs to get a job and stay home because she, she, she's got a kid on the way. And that's, that's that sort of thing. Okay, so now we need to stabilise it and actually build a family and do the sensible things. And then that's the theory of stuff. That the, and then the economy goes and, the, and things change. So in Japan, that hasn't, that, that, that's been a non-event for a long time because people aren't hooking up and they aren't having kids and there's no, there's, there's no new babies being born. They, and, and they don't do the migration thing. So that's where the example comes in on this. And this is why I wanted to talk about migration, that because of this interesting event, this isn't, this isn't a government saying we don't like people from overseas coming to our country. This is actually a government saying we can't actually physically allow people into this country because it's not safe. How long can we go for without that door being opened again? And that's, the, that's whoever wants to answer first, go ahead and answer first because eventually it'll come to a point where they have to, they have to substitute uh, subsidise the, 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 that deficit with people actually coming in to the country again. And it's really- yeah, well, the vested interest will kick in. I mean, they're already discussing a, a trial run for bringing international students into the ACT uh, from next month. I mean, the, the universities are, are crying out for the return of international students because they've built their entire model on... Um, charging high fees to international students. So in terms of when the borders can open more freely, um, it was looking a lot more promising a couple of weeks ago, but now with the the second wave in the US, or is it a continuation of the first wave? But yeah, I mean, James's point is key because I, I wrote an analyst report a couple of years ago called Requiem for a Construction Bubble. We had something like 230,000 dwellings under construction, mainly apartments, and, you know, you, I didn't predict COVID, but you can't keep building at that kind of rate. Eventually, uh, something else has to take its place. So we had 1.2 million people employed in construction. That's 10% of the entire employed workforce. And that's a 100-year high. So, and as uh, James has already touched on there, we know that resi construction has a really strong multiplier of about three. So um, dwelling approvals have held up in Melbourne, but yeah, realistically, dwellings under construction will fall to what, 150,000? That's a huge hole in aggregate demand that we've got to plug next year. And I think that's what's possibly been underestimated when people talk about a V-shaped recovery. Is that, well, I don't think so. Um, quick, I've got a quick question. Sorry, quick question on that, Pete, if I could jump in, Colgo. Um, the likes of Trigobov and, and Merritt and Mervac and all of that, my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that Probably about 18 months ago, if not if not even marginally longer, pre-COVID, pre-all of that, they had a massive stock of um, of buildings, residential properties, and whatever else, towers that they were building out. 
But they basically came out as, as they saw the, the actual market dipping, the, the real estate market dipping, and said that then they're going to complete their existing stock, so whatever stage that was in, and they're not going to add to it until such time as they see a, a resurgence or, or, or a valid uh, bounce back in, in the overall market. So that was pre-COVID. So I'm, I'm just wondering how much of that um, was already factored in and, and foresaw and, and, and you know, ha- had, a, had an effect on, or an impact on, on, the, on the data and the statistics that you mentioned in terms of a workforce not being as much in demand, et cetera, et cetera. If, if they weren't, you know, it, that glut in the market had already been to a degree for, you know, foreseen and foretold. Yeah, because, well, that's the thing. A lot of the, um, the big players, the, the stock is generally pre-sold anyway. So I don't worry yeah. too much about the big players um but it's more just a question of um you know just the activity in the economy um so mm, when mm. you when you've got um you know effectively 10 percent of the workforce workforce employed in construction about three quarters of that directly or otherwise in resi uh, well we can't keep building at the same pace now because we don't have that um surge of immigrants coming through uh, yeah. so what's going to take the place so um you know we've had a failed attempt at a home of renovations package that's not going to do much so we need something bigger on infrastructure than just the usual bringing forward a few billion from next year's budget we actually need some bigger picture thinking and um you know maybe tech hubs can be a part of that i don't know but uh yeah i mean it's um yeah a lot of those um the big players will just pull up stumps until the next cycle now can I, I yeah. want to point out one other thing here that part of the policy mix here with all of that immigration wasn't just like these aren't just you know we're not just talking about worker bees here who are going to come in and buy apartments we're talking about often um highly skilled migrants engineers scientists um uh software developers like we've had a dearth of them um that's why uh you know companies like atlassian need to um set up hubs elsewhere because they literally cannot get the people that they need to build their products here in australia so um, and and certainly, you know, with um, all the civil engineering, all the infrastructure that um, is undoubtedly uh, undoubtedly going to get built now as part of the you know um, the the fiscal side of things. Um, again, this is part of my sort of bearish mood uh, here again today. You know, like I'm kind of wondering, like if you if you so you don't just hurt by stopping immigration. You don't just hurt the residential construction side. Uh, and the multiplier effect that that brings in uh, into the domestic economy, but you also uh, introduce a drag on productivity because you are not able to import the skills that you need um, to get the shit done that you need to get done. Um, I don't know what anybody else thinks about that. Um, tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, I was serious, Pete. I was just going to say. I mean, um, I mean, this has been really Australia's model since the you know just after the Olympics, really running very high levels of immigration. It hasn't always been skilled. One of the things that we do have in our favour, though, in that that is that the visas have been targeted specifically to the under 30. So a lot of international students. And uh, remember back to when I became a permanent resident um, 15 years ago or so, if I was over the age of 30, I would never would have got in. So we do actually have a, the opposite of Japan, really. We've got an extremely strong population pyramid uh, just unprecedented numbers of people coming into that 25 to 35 age bracket. So that can tide us over for a while. But I guess then this is probably a question for Ken. If if my understanding is correct, parts of Europe, countries like Spain, 
Italy, Portugal. I mean, they've basically said, well, we need uh, people to be moving freely again and they're finding ways to make it happen. So I guess that's a question mark. I'm no expert in uh, diseases and pandemics. I mean, can Australia do something on that side of things in terms of swab testing rather than the 14-day enforced quarantine that's at the moment, which is just um, untenable for most people? Yeah, uh, look, I suppose my view on that is that push comes to shove, be it in Australia or any country on the planet, um, and this sort of smalls goes back to the to the guest we had on last week, economic realities will uh, start to outweigh or at least even out the the social need. So I think um, as time goes on, yeah, 14, <coughs> excuse me, 14 days becomes maybe seven. Uh, the immigration lever is probably one of the easier ones to pull and, and shift around, so categories change. So I think all of that is, is, is a... Um, is a moving feast, right? Is a movable feast, moving pieces that can be shifted relatively easily. I think it just needs to get to a point where, as I said, push comes to shove. And I think we're probably not there yet, but, you know, give it another three months of, of real pain, if, if even that, and you'll be, uh, you'll be seeing some very innovative uh, policy solutions, I think, and, and medical solutions as well. Yeah, necessity will be the mother of invention on that and, and the demand will go through. Moving, uh, just the, the, the one extra thing that, that, that I wanted to add on with regards to the theory of stuff is that underlying, the underlying basis of that slowly good growing economy that, that keeps on going. And this is a discussion, and I, and I want to open it up to anyone who's listening to this this stage for an ongoing discussion because I do want it, which is that under this lockdown, are any babies going to be born in that six to nine month period after this time that we've all gone through? Will it, it, and I've I've seen reports about it initially when everyone got locked down because you, you need you need babies you need you need kids you need that that, that growth in the economy it has to happen you've got to have a, a, a growth rate from that source the that initially everyone said oh it's lockdown so there's going to be a baby boom on lockdown but then you see further reports coming out saying that in fact now is the time now is now is not the time for that now is the time to think is this actually do we want to be making the biggest decision of our lives right now? So if we see a, a, a birth rate decline, this big gap in, in, in new babies being born, the impact of that could be, could be quite substantial. And I think everyone's got an opinion on this because everyone's been locked down. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, there's a lot of risk out there. Um, you know, are people, is this a kind of time that people are, when there's so much uncertainty about what everybody's lives are going to look like next year, um, is this a time to um, be um, enlarging the family, you know? Um, okay, I think it's going to be an interesting conversation to pick up, uh, I think, as we go along. And I think we'll get some demographers on here on the show at some point to, um, to chat more about it. Um, there's a couple of excellent demographers uh, in Australia, so um, we'll, be, we'll, be, we'll be looking at that too. Um, now... Uh, Pete, just want to ask you, general advice to clients, people coming in talking to you about like, you know, what's the property going to do? What's the property market going to do? You know, there's all sorts of, because we've been talking about some of the, the downsides here, some of the risks, I suppose you characterize them as, um, you know, the house prices, the house price indexes that are out there have been holding up okay. Um, but that's kind of, as we talked about on the very first show, that we did episode one, we talked about how kind of all, a lot of the economic data at the moment kind of doesn't mean anything um, because uh, it's so weird and warped. 
Um, so what do you think about the house price data at the moment first? Uh, and what do you, what do you say to clients? Uh, well, my first advice would be don't take general advice from a podcast. So uh, just with that disclaimer <laughs> out of the way <laughs> before anybody uh, files a lawsuit. Um, yeah, look, I think, well, first and foremost, people need to check out their financing. It, it's staggering how many people are still paying four and a half or higher on mortgages. So for goodness sake, speak to your bank and refinance to a lower rate. Um, I think uh, a lot of buyers were sitting on their hands for a couple of months, understandably, but um, certainly in this part of the world, people are, uh, they can go to open homes again now, public auctions, people are starting to buy again. So obviously transactions were just non-existent for a period of time there, but they're starting to pick up. Uh, there's very few forced sales at the moment. Now that may change in September, but if you look at the stock on the market, I mean, it's been a decade low. So yes, it's picked up in the past fortnight, but very, very few forced sellers at these sort of levels of interest rates and with the um, stimulus packages in place. So look, most people are proceeding, but with caution, I guess, of, uh, as Howard Marks might say. Yeah, and also just remember, you know, look for assets with scarcity value. Like Ken said, you know, the the generational wealth is, isn't passed down in high-rise apartments, you know. <laughs> that's, uh, that's largely... Um, financed by offshore buyers especially from mainland china um if you're going to invest in property um or even buy a home just look for you know uh, assets with point of scarcity or appeal you know high land to asset ratio i guess but there's a there are still a lot of construction quality issues to wash through yet uh, i don't think we've heard the end of some of these stories about uh, high-rise issues so famously we had mascot towers and opal towers but there could be more of that to come just because of the sheer scale and speed of the construction boom that went before. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of, uh, of apartments, as you said. That is, that is still an issue, that, and, and it, will be, it will rear its head again because not a lot, well, the, 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 the buildings were still built under those same standards of that self-sign-off, self-accreditation to, to, to clear it through, which was loose, and there are, there are more opals out there. It's going to be interesting to watch. Um, and well, the good thing about it is that the, uh, of course, James, is that the theory of um, the theory of stuff uh, kicks in uh, once they start building them again, and they have to get all filled with uh, with <laughs> stuff. I'd rather it was just a natural progression of uh, quarter acre blocks out in the suburbs. That's a, that's, that's, that's a bit more nicer, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, all right, so you've been li- listening to the BIP show. We're going to wrap it up. Uh, James, have you got a trivia question for us this week? Yeah, I do. And I, you know, rack my brains. I remember it was my sister who always, always, always got those squares on the Monopoly board. Name for me, in the order in which you move around the Monopoly board, uh, the three orange squares on the original Monopoly uh, that, that, that's in London. Thank you for paying attention for this long. And uh, the first person to come back on the Twitter, uh, and, uh, and please rate and review us, obviously, but the uh, first person to come back on the Twitter with the three orange squares in order uh, gets the schnitzel and the pint. Uh, so congratulations in advance. Thank you very much for our friend in Brisbane for getting last week's uh, question. Once, the, uh, once everything opens up back again, uh, the schnitzel is yours, mate. That's right. Uh, the border controls are, are very strict at the moment with Queensland, uh, but... Uh uh, we'll see. Actually, I saw today that we're we're not allowing Victorians into <laughs> AFL games uh, in Sydney. Uh, AFL and NRL games. You have to show ID to prove that you're not from Victoria. 
This is it's alarming. <laughs> Some would argue that's long overdue, but that's a yeah. Yeah, Maybe we can make them wear Mexican hats or something. Uh, oh. um, I don't know. Okay. Um, look, it's, it's been great chat, Pete uh, Wardent uh, of Alan Wardent. Uh, Pete, great to chat to you. Um, always um, fascinating uh, having a yak. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Guys, it was an honor to be on um, the show with the guys who coined the theory of stuff, the theory of thing, and the lobotomy paradigm. Uh, genuinely, an absolute pleasure. Cheers, guys. Wonderful. Uh, Ken, uh, great chatting to you. Have a great day. Uh, Likewise. Thanks, guys. You can find us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we're on iTunes. Just search for The Bip Show. Um, don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. It all helps. Uh, we're also on Twitter, uh, at the BIP show, the underscore BIP underscore show. Um, we have a bit of chat on there during the week and you can find us there and tell us questions that you, um, I th- you'd like us um, to ask our guests. Uh, and we're also on Facebook. Just look up uh, the BIP show on there too. Uh, I'm Paul Colgan. You can find me on, on Twitter too, at Colgo. Uh, there's James at, uh, at James Whelan 42 Ken at, at Ken Vexler, and Pete Wardent at at Pete Wharton, surprisingly enough. Uh, it's been great talking to you, and we'll be back next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.